Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Included in California's budget passed last month was a million dollars for a so-called literacy roadmap that called for reading instruction and teacher training based in phonics or letter sounds. While not a lot of money, it is the state showing a preference for a specific method of teaching kids to read. Less than half of California's third graders can read at grade level. And journalist Emily Hanford says a big part of the reason is that they've been subjected to a theory of reading instruction that isn't based in science, that de-emphasized phonics. We'll talk with Hanford about how she reached that conclusion and hear if you agree with her. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In California and nationwide, some two-thirds of fourth graders are not what's called proficient in reading. And this has had alarmed lawmakers proposing new legislation recently, requiring new curriculum, banning certain reading instruction methods. In some state legislatures, they're citing the work of journalist Emily Hanford. Hanford reports that part of the problem has been a flawed and disproven theory of how reading works that's been at the heart of curriculum used in schools in California and across the country. She says they were sold a story, which is also the title of the podcast she released late last year. And Emily Hanford joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you. Could you just describe for us what this flawed theory is and how it's been used to teach reading? I've heard it referred to as cueing or other terms. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a lot of terms here, which is part of what makes this very difficult to understand. What's really going on is when parents have questions and others, it can be often uh, difficult to get at the heart of the matter. So to put it sort of briefly, um, there have been arguments for a really long time about how to teach kids to read, and we can get into some of that history later if you want because it's fascinating. But essentially what's happened over the past 50 years or so is there's been a gigantic amount of research done by cognitive scientists and other researchers all over the world in labs and in classrooms and lots of different languages. And they figured out all these really interesting things about how we read. Like, how do we do that? How do we learn to do it? How does our brain do it? How does it work? And these findings have a lot of implications in terms of how kids should be taught and what they need to learn. 
And this research hasn't really made its way very well, very easily into schools. So there's this kind of um, at the heart of the long standing debate about how to teach kids to read is sort of the question of where you begin. Do you begin with the letters and the sounds? Uh, you mentioned in the billboard the word phonics. So phonics has been at the heart of debates about reading for a really long time. When people are arguing about reading, they're usually arguing about phonics. So that was one idea. You sort of have to start with phonics instruction, and kids need to understand those letters and sounds and how they work to make words and then how words to go together to make sentences and full stories. And then sort of another idea, broadly speaking, which is, the goal of reading is to comprehend what you read. And obviously, that's the fun part. That's what we want kids to be able to do. And maybe all this letters and sound stuff is sort of too much detail, distracting, uh, kind of tedious, and, and it can be kind of tedious, potentially. And so let's start with the meaning of what kids are reading and really focus on um, giving them books and giving them strategies they can use to understand the words. And they will learn how to read if we can kind of get them into books and get them lots of miles on the page. Those are sort of the broad outlines of the debate. Um, but in this idea that I look at in Sold a Story is this idea that you will find in classrooms all over the country, which is when a kid is starting to learn how to read, you want to teach them lots of different strategies to figure out the words. And it makes it seems to make sense. Like, why not teach kids lots of different ways to figure out the words? So you would teach them these what have come, become known as cueing strategies. Look at the cues or clues in the text or in the book, like the pictures, the first letter of the word, the last letter of a word. Come up with a good guess. Sort of figure out the words as you go, mm -hmm. and it'll all come together. And it turns out that that idea is really rooted in, in, in something that isn't right about reading and how it works and what cognitive scientists really started taking on back in the 70s and 80s to understand, is that theory of how we read really how it works? Or more importantly, is this understanding the letters and sounds really critical, really foundational? And what they really discovered is that learning how to read is not like learning to talk. It's very different. It's not something you're just going to learn to do by being exposed to books. Kids need instruction, and some of us need a lot of instruction to be able to understand this. And that if you teach kids lots of strategies to figure out the words, often that puts this idea of explicitly teaching kids how the sounds and letters works sort of sometimes on the side or on the back burner or as mm. one thing you can do. Yeah. But then you can go have kids kind of guess. And it turns out that this teaches many kids the habits of struggling readers because all of us who are good readers actually have a very, very good understanding of how the letters and sounds work. It doesn't mean we can describe it or tell you all the rules of the English language, but we really have a good intuitive sense. We have built up through sort of uh, lots and lots of experiences with text. We have really built up a really good understanding of how the words we know how to say, how they are represented by letters in words and how this sort of alphabetic principle works. Yeah. So anyway. in, your, in your podcast, you actually walk listeners through a demonstration of all these other strategies, these cueing strategies. And, and I actually want to play that for our listeners. Uh, this is a clip of a teacher reading a story about Zelda and Ivy. And we hear your voice first. The teacher reads the story. The kids can see the words on the screen. They're following along as she reads. And then the teacher comes to a word that she's covered up with a little yellow sticky note. Okay, so we're going to stop right here on this covered word. We're going to see if the picture helps us to figure out what that word would be. And now they think their mom and dad will 
will what? Zelda and Ivy ran away, and now they think their mom and dad will scold them? Find them? Do you think that covered word could be the word miss? Ah, miss them. Could it be the word miss? Because now that they're gone, maybe their parents will miss them? Let's do our triple check and see. Does it make sense? Does it sound right? How about the last part of our triple check? Does it look right? Let's uncover the word and see if it looks right. The teacher lifts up the sticky note, and indeed, the word is miss. It looks right, too. Good job. Very good job. So, so again, this is, I guess, the an example of the flawed or disproven theory put into practice as a reading instruction methodology. This is not what cognitive scientists said kids needed to learn how to read. Is exactly. phonics closer to what cognitive scientists said is needed? Yes. It- Yeah, it's very important to recognize that phonics is not the only thing that kids need. But one of the really interesting findings from all this cognitive science research is that learning how to read really begins with sound. It's understanding how the sounds in the words that you know how to say are represented by letters and combinations of letters. And we do have brains, like we, as human beings, we have been talking to each other for a very, very long time, but we invented this whole reading and writing thing relatively recently, like a few thousand years ago. And for many of those thousands of years, it really wasn't a necessity for everyone to be able to read and write. That's changed dramatically over the past few hundred years, and in particular over the last few decades, that reading and writing skills, that literacy is really, really critical. And it turns out that becoming literate requires a lot more than being exposed to written text. It really is something that you need to to learn how to do and that most people need a pretty good dose of instruction to get good at. This was one of the really, really big aha moments for me as a journalist, because I think I was one of those kids who didn't need much instruction. I don't remember a lot about being taught, so I could be wrong. But my kids, too, learned to read pretty easily. I didn't think about it very much until I got interested in this whole how are kids being taught to read thing a few years ago. And that's when I realized that there are a lot of people, far more than I thought, who really struggle with learning how to read, and it doesn't have to do with intelligence. There are very, very smart people, very, very smart little kids who may actually have really, really big, sophisticated, spoken vocabularies, but learning how to read those words is actually really hard. And the kind of instruction that many, many kids are getting in school isn't adequate. It isn't enough for a lot of kids to become good readers. So if you're saying it isn't enough, can you do cueing and phonics? Because a lot of schools do teach some phonics. Why can't reading instruction do both phonics and cueing? Absolutely. And that's actually what's happened under the name of what is broadly known as balanced literacy. So if you go and you ask your 
child's school, how they teach reading, you probably will hear, or you would have at least a few years ago, hear the term balanced literacy. And balanced literacy sounds good. In fact, balance is actually exactly what we're going for in reading instruction and in lots of instruction. The problem with balanced literacy, as I show in the Sold a Story podcast, is that there's an idea about reading and how it works that's at the core. And it's this idea that kids don't have to sound out the words when they're learning how to read because you can teach them all these other strategies to figure out the words too. So what you described is exactly what's been happening in many schools. Under the name of balanced literacy, they've been getting a little bit of phonics instruction, but they're also taught all these different strategies. And then very often there are given books that require them to use those other strategies. They're given books actually with some words in them that they haven't been taught how to sound out. Their phonics instruction hasn't gotten to the spelling patterns in those words. So the only way those kids can try to read those books is by looking at the pictures, looking at the first letter and guessing. And often kids who have a really good spoken vocabulary can fool you. They can fool the teachers because they can look like they're reading when they're not because they're drawing on their vocabulary knowledge. They often know what an alligator is. So they see a picture of an alligator and they know that's an alligator. Whereas other kids who aren't familiar with alligators or maybe speaking English as a second language, that is not obvious to them. So actually the cueing stuff is even more difficult in many ways for kids who don't speak English or haven't had a lot of vocabulary at home. But again, those kids that have those kinds of advantages often can look like they're good reading readers until they get to about third or fourth grade when the books get longer, the pictures start to go away, they start to see far, far more words that they've never seen before. They haven't been able to memorize them because that's another thing that a lot of kids are taught to do in school is just memorize words, almost like take a little picture of it. But that is not actually how you get a word stored into your memory. You don't remember it like a picture. Instead, what you actually do is you make this link in your brain, and there's fascinating studies that have shown this, where you link the spelling of a word with the pronunciation of the meaning. When those three things come together for you, that word gets stored in your mind. And then reading becomes not figuring out the words, your brain is focusing on the meaning of what you're reading, which is the goal, but the words come easily because almost all of them you've seen before and you know them in an instant. Hmm. We're talking with Emily Hanford, a reporter and producer with American Public Media, who also has just done this podcast that came out late last year called Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong. Share your questions or thoughts about Emily Hanford's reporting and what she's sharing with us. Right after the break, I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about how kids are taught to read in the U.S., how they learn best, and growing calls for school districts in California and around the country to return to an approach that teaches kids how to sound out words. We're talking with Emily Hanford, a reporter and producer with American Public Media, host of the podcast Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong. And if you have questions or thoughts about her reporting, also about how you were taught reading, if you want to share how you were taught and how your kids were taught, or if you're an early grades teacher and you have gone through this experience of being told different methods for reading, we'd love to hear about it. Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on social at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Wendy tweets, before I entered kindergarten, my parents taught me the alphabet and sounds and read to me. I saw my parents reading newspapers and books every day. I knew it was enjoyable. You just before the break, you were describing sort of how um, how important it is for kids to be able to use sounds and understand what a word is visually to eventually get to the point where they are really making meaning from the words that they have learned because they have this whole sort of bank of words that they have stored up now from having really wrestled with that word, especially on a level of sound. And I just want to clarify, I know that... Um, in your early reporting, you actually had a teacher who I think said that cueing can almost negate the ability to read or to use sounding out as a reading strategy. Why did you include that? What what did she mean by that? Yeah, well, that's what I've been hearing from a lot of teachers, and it's borne out in some research, too. Re- many researchers have talked to me about this. So... <clears throat> When you are a good reader, you are very quickly uh, recognizing those words because at some point you laboriously sounded out the word and connected the spelling, the pronunciation, and the meaning. And the problem with teaching kids that they can sound out the words, but they don't have to, is that often those other strategies are sort of easier um, at first, like Mm. look at the letter, look at the picture, right? So like sounding out the words, especially in English, can actually be kind of difficult. And in fact, many teachers, part of the problem here is many teachers themselves don't receive the training that they need in how English spelling works to be able to teach it well to little kids. But the problem with teaching those cueing strategies is that it turns out this is the this is one of the big ahas from the research, which is the difference between one of the big differences between struggling readers and skilled readers is that skilled readers instantly know tens of thousands of words on site and struggling readers are often searching around for clues. Too many of the words that they come across are like little mysteries and they don't know what to do with them. And they're looking at the first letter, looking at the last letter, taking a guess, thinking of the context, trying to come up with something that makes sense. They're not right a lot of the time, which means that their comprehension gets way off really quickly. If you misread just a few really key words in a passage, your understanding of what that passage means can be way, way off. So the problem is that that the so the the bottom line here is that when schools teach those skewing strategies, They're actually teaching kids, little kids who are learning how to read. They're teaching them the exact strategies, the habits that struggling readers use to get by. Mm. 
rather than the things that good readers do to become good readers. And the problem is some kids get over it, right? Like some kids can be taught the cueing stuff and then go practice in those books and get some phonics instruction. And they start to really realize pretty quickly that the most accurate, efficient, quickest way eventually to know a word is to sound it out, right? But lots of other kids get ingrained in this habit where they're not looking closely at the words and connecting the spelling with the meaning. They are taking a guess. They're taking a whack at it. They're skipping the words when they don't know what they are. That's actually a strategy that kids are taught. Just skip the word if you don't know it. That's okay to do every once in a while. But if you start skipping the words you don't know, pretty soon you have no idea what you're reading. So cueing is teaching kids the habits of struggling readers. And some kids are, those habits are getting ingrained and they're not going away. Some kids just drop the cueing strategies and they're fine, but lots of kids don't. And I've talked to lots and lots of upper grades teachers and tutors who work with kids who are 10, 11, 15 years old. And they say to me all the time, the first thing I need to do is break them of that bad habit of not looking carefully at the words. Hmm. Well, let me go to call a Rochelle in Pacifica. Hi, Rochelle. You're on. Um, hello. Good morning. I'd like to tell you about my fraternal twin sons. They're 35 now. And what I found fascinating when they were in school was that they seemed to learn to read in different ways. They're fraternal boys, so their minds are different. And they had all the same exposures, but one seemed to take to the whole word strategy, which is what our district was teaching at the time. And the other one seemed to learn phonetically. And thank heavens, he had a teacher that continued to embrace phonetics in addition to the whole word strategy. So watching them learn to read in different manners was just fascinating. The whole word reader seemed to have a very strong memory for recognizing a word. Once he saw it and knew it, he owned it, never forgot it. And the other one continued to have to sound words out. And their little brother, by coincidence, had the phonetic teacher, and he learned to read. I think he learned phonetically as well, but uh, I didn't notice as carefully as I did with my older twin son. Hmm. Well, Rochelle, wow, that you were able to compare the two experiences and see what the outcome was. Let me go to caller Jonathan next in San Francisco. Hi, Jonathan. You're on. Hey there. Um, I'm hearing this whole discussion. It reminds me of when I first came to America. I had to learn how to read phonetically myself. They didn't want to let me go to the first grade until I knew my ABC song. (laughs) We didn't study that in other places. And um, what I'm hearing, what she's saying, the different way students learn and how they're taught to remember pictures and correspond that to what they're trying to read. You know, my mom actually became a teacher before, um, sorry, my mom became a teacher after she graduated. And she said one of her worst things about the public education system is how we teach our students how to remember facts instead of solve equations. So a lot of people are always trying to remember and correlate what they're remembering to whatever it is they're doing instead of actually getting down to what they're learning about or the context of what they're learning about. And that's about it. Well, well, Jonathan, thank you. You know, I'm so curious, this method of of using cueing as a strategy um, in balanced literacy as the program that it's often referred to as shorthand. I think the the idea behind a phonics-based curriculum or phonics-based strategies and decoding and so on is now referred to in shorthand as the science of reading. But this this balanced literacy approach with cueing, how widespread has it been in California and the U.S., Um, Emily? I'm just so curious how widely it was adopted. 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And it, as reporters, it's actually a very difficult thing to figure out because in the United States, we do have this system of local control, uh, which is really strong in California, but there's some version of local control is pretty strong uh, all over the country, really. And so figuring out exactly what schools teach and how they teach it, you know, we don't have standardized curriculum, we don't have standardized approaches. One of the things I started realizing since I've been reporting on this now for so many years, though, is that while there isn't sort of one curriculum or one method that you can identify as predominant, I recognize that balanced literacy, there's a lot of survey uh, data out there that shows that that is really used by, it, it depends on the survey and how they ask the question, but um, a, a, a definitely far more than half of schools would say that they were using this balanced literacy idea. So I started to try to get inside, well, what is that? And what are the ideas behind that? And if you look at different materials that are used in balanced literacy classrooms, what is motivating the sort of like, what's the idea about how kids learn to read that's within those materials? Mm -hmm. And that's why I started to understand that you would see these cueing strategies, you'd see a little bit of phonics, um, but then kids doing exactly what you mentioned before, which is like then going and being using the cueing strategies. So they might get a little bit of phonics instruction, but then when they're going to practice what they were taught, they have to sort of rely on those cueing strategies. So that those become sort of primary in their mind. Mm. So I think that you can find, depending on what you look at, you can find there's many versions of this balanced literacy stuff that's out there. And it's not just in the curriculum materials. It's really in the professional development. It's in the preparation the teacher gets, teachers get before they become teachers, before they're on the job. So you can sort of find these ideas everywhere. And that's why I did the Soul to Story podcast. The Soul to Story podcast is six episodes plus two bonus episodes. There's eight episodes. It's about five hours of listening. And the whole thing is really just about one idea. It's this idea that when kids are learning how to read, they don't have to sound out the written words because you can teach them all these other strategies to figure out the words. That turns out to be a bad idea because it's teaching kids the habits of struggling readers. You used the term science of reading before, and, it, and that is a term that's being tossed around a lot these days. And I think often it's used as if it's an approach or a program or a way to teach reading. And it's not. It's a body of research. It's really a body of knowledge that has really important implications for teaching. If you understand something about what all good readers can do and what all good readers need to be able to do to get to that point, and what are the things that you need to learn, and what are the things that you need to learn that are best explicitly taught, right? So there's lots of things we learn that we're not necessarily taught. But at the end of the day, there's really an equity issue here, which is some kid, lots of kids aren't getting the instruction they need in school. And some kids have a backup plan, and the backup plan is their parents and their parents' checkbooks. So their parents do, are able to and do hire tutors, for example, or teach their kids themselves at home. But lots of kids don't have that backup. So if they're not getting the instruction in school, they're not going to get it. Whereas kids who are lucky enough to be from more affluent families may be able to get what they need outside of school. Mm. So you're saying that because there is at least a substantial proportion of children who learn to read, you know, even if they've been taught under this balanced literacy method, you're saying part of the reason could be that they're just part of that group of kids that learns to read no matter what, no matter how they're taught, they just sort of get it. Yes. Or yep. there are kids who whose parents may be supplementing their reading education because they're recognizing that their kid doesn't know how to read and they're actually supplementing it with, say, a more sounding out-based education or even maybe these parents are you know, taking time off of work to be able to help them, which is 
some of the parents yeah. that we met in and, your podcast. And it's, it's v- definitely, it's very hard to quantify that, to understand, but that was coming up so often in my reporting. I was hearing it so frequently that I really decided to sort of dig in and mm. and, sh- and and show that in the podcast. It's it's very hard to know, and I'd love to get some data on that someday. How what percentage of of kids are getting in X school district are getting outside tutoring, and how much are the parents spending? Well, this is new rights. I completely agree with you. I'm in my sixth decade and have watched many methods come and go with my children and grandchildren. What's disturbing is that it's been known for decades that the way they are teaching is not working. So who is making these? decisions. I I guess I would also add to that, like, how did it get to the point where this method of teaching, this disproven method of teaching became the preferred method in schools? And you introduce us to some major figures, um, you know, the people who came up with the methodology, the publishing company that published this methodology or this curriculum for schools. So can you just introduce us to some of those folks? Sure. I mean, the Sold a Story podcast focuses on a a small group of people in a publishing company who have become in many ways a sort of brand name version of balanced literacy. They've really become very successful at selling a certain collection of ideas and routines about how to teach reading that I show are really sort of rooted in this flawed idea that I've been talking about. But like I said, there are many. There are like you can find these kinds of materials from lots of publishing companies, from lots of people who are um, experts and selling their services to school. And the Sold a Story podcast is really trying to address that question that I think everyone comes to, that that your listener came to, which is, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did it happen that something that actually has been known by cognitive scientists for a long time wasn't somehow known by schools and teachers? And this is a very difficult, interesting, difficult, and um, sort of traumatic question um, and thing for for teachers to deal with. Because I think all over the country right now, teachers are sort of reckoning with the fact that there's a lot of stuff that they didn't know and that they were actually, in, in some cases, teaching their kids, their students, the habits of struggling readers, not because they intended to. I don't think anyone had ill intentions here. It's just that they didn't know. And I think these cueing strategies, which when you call them out, I think to a lot of people become very quickly, it's sort of quickly obvious what's wrong with them. I think for many teachers, they were desperate to teach their students how to read. And they were in front of 25 or 30 first graders who needed to learn how to read. And they hadn't been given the materials or given the training to know how to do that effectively. So they were searching around for how can I do it? And they came across these strategies that they could teach and these certain kinds of books that they could give kids to practice and these particular ways of assessing children and their reading levels. And it all seemed to make sense and it was doable and there were experts who were telling them this is the way and they bought into that for many, many years without recognizing that there was a really big disconnect between all of that and what cognitive scientists had figured out about reading and how it actually works. And and fair to say you focused on education leaders like Lucy Calkins, Irene Fontes, Gay Supinell, and and Heinemann Publishing Company because they ended up being probably the most profitable in this space? 
Yeah, they were certainly among the most influential. Um, there's a lot of money in education, and, and there's nothing wrong with money in education. Schools need things. They need good materials. But yes, we focused on those names that you just talked about. So Lucy Calkins is a professor at Teachers College Columbia, and Irene Fountas and Gaysu Pinnell are known as Fountas and Pinnell. And I guarantee you that pretty much anyone working in an American elementary school knows that name, Fountas and Pinnell. <laughs> Many of them are like, wait, what is that? Is that a company? Are those people? Are they alive? It's two women who are literally literacy professors. So these are all women who are professors who were really at the top of their field and published these materials with a, a small company um, in, based in New Hampshire called Heinemann Publishing. And again, as we point out in the first episode of Soul to Story, they are not the only ones, but they really became the sort of brand name version. They're sort of the Kleenex or the Google or whatever. Like everyone knows, everyone in schools knows them and knows their names and knows their products. They really, really became very popular, very influential and and very um, highly regarded um, by many teachers and by many school district leaders who are making decisions about uh, the materials to buy. Yeah, I actually want to play a cut from a teacher you spoke with in your podcast, a former seventh grade English teacher uh, Carrie Chi, who I, I believe may actually be in California, um, just talking about how much they adopted and believed in uh, these ideas that uh, these key figures were putting out there. I just kept saying, well, keep trying. And then when they couldn't, I just thought they didn't want to try. And what I'm haunted by is when it wasn't working, I blamed it on children. So she's talking there about how much she, you know, how she handled struggling readers. Yeah. Can I add yeah. something to that, Please. too? Because I, I, I think one of the things that happens for a lot yeah. of teachers, and this is sort of an explanation of how this happened, which is they, they, they're doing, they're working hard and they're doing what their curriculum materials tell them to do and what they've been told in the professional development that they get on the job. And they're working hard and it's not working. Often they blame themselves first. Well, I must not be good enough. So many teachers have said, I thought it was me. I thought it was my fault. And then often they do, as Carrie was just saying, blame the kids. I'm working hard. I'm doing everything. Thing I'm supposed to do. So it must be the kids. They must have a disability or their parents didn't read to them enough. They start to blame the parents. And this is, I think, what's happened in this country is we've started to sort of blame other factors. And we've started to kind of excuse the poor reading and say, well, it's poverty. Poverty definitely plays a role. There is no getting around it that kids who have more access to resources, have more exposure to books, get read to more before they go to school. All of those things really, really help and are really, really critical when it comes to developing good reading skills. But you can read to your kids till the cows come home, as one noted cognitive scientist said, and they still might not become good readers because they really need instruction. They need someone to show them how their written language works. We're talking with Emily Hampert, education reporter and producer with American Public Media, whose reporting over the last five years has made a lot of waves. Her podcast, Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong, is actually being cited in efforts to try to change reading instruction across the country. We're hearing why, and we're hearing your thoughts. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how kids are taught to read in the U.S. and growing calls for school districts in California as well as around the country to try a new approach or maybe go back to an old approach, a phonics-focused approach that teaches kids how to sound out words and why we haven't been doing that. Steve writes, for example, I'm so surprised to hear that phonics hasn't been the basis for reading instruction for two decades. I've been involved in reading intervention, early learning, and content development for dyslexic students, including a set of phonics-based books called Sound Out. My apparently eccentric understanding has been that systematic sequential phonics is the basis of reading skill development for any struggling reader, and that technique and that techniques for struggling readers are effective for all students. If you have thoughts or reactions, (laughs) if you have thoughts or reactions to what Emily Hanford is reporting as well, like Steve, then feel free to email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads at KQED Forum, or call 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And let me go to Heather now in Oakland. Hi, Heather. You're on. Hi. Uh, I have a child in the Oakland Public School District, which uh, left the Lucy Calkins, um Writers Workshop and is now using a phonics-based curriculum. Um, however, my daughter this year, at the end of the year, was um, given an IEP, an Individualized Education Plan, to support her because she's been identified to have issues with um, reading and decoding. This comes at the end of second grade. In the beginning of third grade, kids are mostly supposed to be reading independently and um, interpreting texts as opposed to getting phonics instruction. Um, And I listened to all of Emily's podcasts and loved them. Um, And I also have been doing research around um, dyslexia screening and that dyslexia screening is available um, in some states as early as kindergarten so that students who may already be identified to have problems with decoding words and phonics and those types of issues can get support um, in the earlier part of their education as opposed to later elementary school where then they're just trying to catch up all the time. And I wanted to hear from Emily to see if she's um, done any research or knows anything about these screenings and why um, a state like California would not want to implement early dyslexia screening if we know that the research really supports that type of curriculum. Thanks. Yeah, sure. 
Thanks for your call. I mean, you're obviously your personal story speaks very much to the importance of early screening and early identification because it really is important to get kids on the right track early because learning to read all these skills are so cumulative, right? So there really t- starts to be a big divide between kids who are getting it and are sort of taking off and accumulating all kinds of skills and teaching themselves new words and gaining knowledge through reading, and then kids who are really struggling and not getting that. And um, so it's really, really important to get this early. You have a new um, a new uh, piece of legislation that was just signed into law by your governor, if I'm not mistaken, which is going to require uh, that all schools use a screener from an approved list, uh, that ki- kids, all kids kindergarten through two are going to have to be screened starting in 20, the 20, I think 2025. Um, I think parents can opt out of it if they don't want their kids screened, but it really is essential. Lots of kids are getting missed, especially because what I talked about earlier in the show, which is some kids can look like they're good readers with the assessments that many schools have been using and with the books that they're sending home with kids, they can look like they're reading when they're not really reading that well. So it's really, really important to dig in deep and understand whether those core skills that good reading rests upon are in place in the early years or if kids are struggling with parts of it and really need extra instruction and extra practice with those parts of the word. And the earlier um, listener who who connect, who contacted us because he's been working with kids who are struggling, I think this is another thing that's really important, why screening is so important. Um, Unfortunately, I think in many schools, the only way to get your kids the kind of direct and systematic instruction in how to sound out words was to get them identified as having a reading problem or having dyslexia. Sometimes that will actually open up exactly the kind of instruction that really can benefit all kids if all kids are given that instruction right from the very beginning. You can prevent a lot of reading problems. There are always going to be kids who are going to need extra help, and that's really, really important to understand. Some kids just need more instruction and more practice and repetition. But if you give good core instruction at the beginning, you can prevent a lot of kids from falling behind. Mm Yeah, Heather, thanks for the call. And you're reminding me of a conversation I really appreciated with our listeners on this on dyslexia, um, as well and on screening and so on, where we talked about uh, all of these issues. Another listener, Kate writes, whole language is now discredited, I believe, but not completely. I briefly worked on a whole language project during grad school in the 90s. It did make me think about how I learned to read, but it never seemed completely right to me. Emily, I mentioned another effort that California is starting, which is this literacy roadmap and where they're talking about teacher training and, you know, decoding and phonics-based instruction and trying to support and figure out how to do that in schools as well. And But the reality is, is that California is um, a state with districts who operate by local control. And, and mm-hmm. so... How have you seen districts in California responding to your reporting? Because you did include some key districts who had really adopted, say, like the balanced literacy reading workshop type of model. What have they done now? 
I mean, I think it's really important. I mean, the state is making available money and uh, a roadmap, but you're right that at the end of the day, it's sort of up to the district to do what they want to do. And so I think conversations like this one are so important. Um, People telling their stories about their kids who are struggling and why. Uh, Districts that have changed the way that they're teaching and um, what kinds of uh, effects they've seen, what kinds of improvements they've seen. I think that at the end of the day, this really has to come from the people in the district looking at each other and looking at themselves and saying, how are we teaching reading and are we really teaching this the most effectively to to our students? So I, I think they have to be convinced that change is um, is necessary here. And this is hard. This is hard stuff. It takes time. It takes money. In many ways, it can be a sort of difficult reckoning with the fact that you maybe were did not have uh, the best stuff implemented. For many districts, they've spent a lot of money uh, already on a particular course, and it may require saying, oh, uh, maybe that money wasn't well spent. We have to make a, a, a new decision here, and we may need some some new money to spend on new things. But again, I would urge anyone uh, who is thinking about this to recognize that I don't think the first answer is to go buy something new. I think the most important thing here is knowledge, is helping the teachers and the parents and all the other people involved in the school and the school system and these children's lives to understand what has been figured about figured out about reading and how it works and what kids need to learn. One of the great things about 2023 is a huge amount of this research has now been translated into really good articles that are readable, that are understandable, podcasts like the one that I did, and many other reporters are really writing good stuff about this. We have a reading list on the Soul to Story uh, page, soldastory.org. There's just 10 of the things that were the most important, among the most important to me in understanding all of this. I probably could have put 100 things on that list, but but there are 10 things and they're all, it's a, they're really good places to start. Well, Karen writes, unfortunately, Ms. Hambert has not read or has ignored decades of research that contradict what she is reporting. For example, one of the queuing systems is teaching children the graph phonemic system so they learn how to sound out words. Children are taught to sound out words as a strategy because it is only one aspect of how the English language works. That is Karen's pushback. You've also gotten some pushback. The Hetchinger Report, a nonprofit education newsroom at Teachers College at Columbia University had this op-ed that was signed by 58 educators that basically said that um, they they want the rest of the story. They say, quote, the research that is being ignored, the stories of school districts and educators who have seen incredible success using comprehensive approaches to reading instruction are conveniently left out of this narrative. Just wanted to give you a chance to respond, Emily. Sure. Well, I think the first comment that you had um, is identifying exactly the, the what I've looked at and sold a story, which is there is this this she was mentioning this where the three queuing system ideas comes from that the graphophonics the letters are one system that kids use to to figure out words, but then you teach them these other systems. That that theory right there, this idea that we use that we use many different ways to identify the words as we're using is the theory that was shown by cognitive scientists not to be right. Mm -hmm. So it was that very, people know, you know, for hundreds of years we fought about this because no one knew how people learned to read. And that exact theory was taken on by cognitive scientists who were like, hi, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if what good readers do is use all these different strategies to identify the words as they're reading. And it turns out they don't. It turns out that's exactly what you find when you study struggling readers. How are the struggling readers doing it? They're using all these different strategies to figure out the words. 
So it's really important to recognize that this gets down to some subtleties that are important to, you know, get into the fine details of. If you are trying to figure out the meaning of a word, like we do this all the time as adults, we come across a word that we've never seen before. We try to sound it out. Maybe we don't even get the right uh, pronunciation. Like an example that I use all the time is my son was in 10th grade and he was reading out loud to me and he said, epitome. And I said, hmm, do you mean epitome? And he said, oh, yeah, epitome. And then he, he, he clearly had heard that word before. Maybe he knew a little bit about what it was. So we talked about the word, the meaning of the word, epitome, epitome. He had probably come across it before when he was reading, right? Epitome, don't know what that is. Move on. But then in this moment where he was reading out loud to his mom and his mom was like, oh, no, 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 that's epitome. Now he did exactly the thing that he needs to do. He connected the pronunciation of the word with the meaning of the word and the spelling of a word. And now that kid is 23 years old and he knows epitome. He knows how to read it. Mm. But there, that also talks to you about that's, that's family background and privilege, right? He was reading out loud to me and I, his mom, I know, I, I, I heard, I was like, oh, I know sure. that word. I'm going to help you out here. And so that... That is how, and this gets replicated in, you know, 10, dozens, hundreds of instances a day when you are reading. And we all know, I'm sure every listener can think of an example of a moment of embarrassment where they said something out loud and they totally mispronounced it. And then people laugh at them like, what are you talking about? What was the one? Oh, I did it really embarrassingly with... um, Oh, gosh, now I'm going to forget the example. I did <laughs> yes. it just the other day. But everyone's done it. And sure. You're like, oh, I- I've right. done it on the air. So, yeah, it's great. <laughs> but I guess the main thing that I wonder is, is if the cognitive scientists are right, and if we really um, need to be focused on making some shifts in our broader strategies for teaching reading, how do we – how do we – treat our kids who have not been taught in that way. What, what, do mm. we, what do we owe them, right? If they're struggling to read in part because of the reading instruction they received that wasn't yeah. necessarily... Yes. I think this is one of the most difficult things. It's not easy to now turn around and just change the instruction right at the beginning, K-1, 2, 3, right? And a lot of schools are doing that. But it is, okay, so now the kid's are already in fourth grade. The kid's in eighth grade. The kid's in 12th grade. That is really difficult. There's no time built into the day. It's not an expectation that those that those teachers are going to teach the kids how to read. Where are you going to do it? Who's going to do it? How are you going to do it? I get these questions all the time from people in schools. And all I can say is that, you know, there are a number of schools that are really grappling with this right now. And there are no easy answers. It's much better to get this right early. But I think we do all as a society owe the kids who didn't get good instruction. Here's the really good news from the scientific research on reading. Almost all people can be taught how to read and can become pretty good readers. Not everyone's going to be a great reader or love reading, but most people, the vast 95, 96, 98 percent of people can be taught how to be functional readers. And we don't have that. We have more than a third of kids in fourth grade in the United States who cannot read on what's just known as a basic level. That is just basically being able to get by with written text. It doesn't get better when kids are in eighth grade and 12th grade. We test mm-hmm. them in eighth grade and we test them in 12th grade too. This is not a good story. And we, and there, but, but the good news is I have met a number of teenagers and adults who were really struggling readers and they got good instruction and they learned how to read. Let me remind listeners that you are listening to Forum and I'm Mina Kim.
Let me go to caller Judith in Oakland. But just before I do, let me read Pat's comment because it sounds like we're getting a lot like this. Pat writes, I'm 81 years old. I was taught to read by sight. Not only do I have trouble reading some words, I'm also a terrible speller. It's not hard to memorize a four or five letter word, but when they get longer, it becomes much harder. Phonics is the best answer. Let me go to Judith in Oakland. Hi, Judith. Thanks for waiting. You're on. Hi, I've been um, tutoring online, reading and math, and then I joined a program that taught um, was all about phonics. And I and there was a like a one or two day training, and then there is a, a you know a progressive uh, lessons. But I have to say, I mean, I'm kind of educated, a retired physical therapist. I could not <laughs> figure out how to teach phonics. I huh. just thought it was really hard, and yeah. I wonder about our teachers who haven't been taught it. I worked really hard at it, and I didn't learn by phonics, and I could not, I was not successful, nor did I feel qualified to do it. So <sighs> whether Judith. I believe it, wonder about this issue. Yeah, such a, such a great point, because right now you are seeing, Emily, some big reactions, like um, state legislatures actually banning queuing and also requiring sort of like a phonics-based instruction and... Yeah, I just feel like, as Judith has described, this is not going to be an easy transition. And I'm very curious, especially even legislation that is spurred by your reporting. How are you feeling about that? Hmm. Yeah, well, we have some bonus episodes of Soul to Story where we actually talk a little bit. Me and my co-reporter, Christopher Peake, talk a little bit about how we feel about the fact that this has helped to spur a lot of change. And you know, um, I mean, I'm really interested as a reporter to see what hap- what happens. Um, you know, I don't, as one cognitive scientist put it in one of our bonus episodes, like, it's not ideal to have to sort of legislate this, right? It's sort of a last resort. But in so many cases, teachers just haven't got what, gotten what they needed and gotten good training. Um, and as to what the previous caller was saying about how difficult it is to teach phonics, I mean, it's true that many teachers themselves are coming in and they don't have a good understanding themselves because they weren't taught it when they were little about how the English writing system works. There are also lots of different phonics programs out there, and some of them are better than others. There's lots of different training you can get, and some is some is better than others. So, you know, it's really, really important. This becomes very important when it comes to how schools are doing it, which is what are they investing in, how, they are, in, how are they investing in the teacher knowledge and the teacher training? Are the teachers being given what they need? Two days of training I, is not enough. Right. Like and that, and that's too often what we've done in this system is like give teachers some new curriculum. Here's two days of training in the summer. Off you go. Do it. That's I mean, that's it, not going to work well for anyone with with anything. Right. We all know that. I'm going to see if I can squeeze Eileen and Berkeley in here because I think she has a comment on point. Hi, Eileen. Go ahead. Hi there, Emily. I'm listening to Sold the Story for the fourth time. Thank you so much. Um, I taught for almost 20 years OUSD in private schools in Berkeley, and I turned to uh, become an educational therapist because I did not have the knowledge or training around how kids learn to read or how kids how we learn to learn, how we learn. And I think a, a huge hole is that teachers don't have the information they need, and they're told what to teach, and it's not it, it's not the most effective thing. Um, administrators. <laughs> 
don't even have the information that they need to make the choices that they end up uh, making and then holding their teachers accountable for doing. And um, so just thank you so much. And I hope everybody hears and um, gets the information they need. And uh, teacher I, education yeah. programs should be changed. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, Thanks for thank that. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And Emily Hambert, thank you also for looking so deeply into this issue and, and giving us a chance to, to ask you about it. And been pushed back You're a welcome. bit on it. And I, I really appreciate being on. Go in depth. Emily Hanford, the podcast is Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. And let me tell you, Forum is produced also by Grace Wan and Dan Zoll, Marlena Jackson Rotondo, Francesca Fenzi, Susie Britton, our engineers, Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard, our intern, Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.